zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Justin Aylett has asked us to review The Fury, released March 10th, 1978. It was written by John Ferris based on his own novel, directed by Brian De Palma, and released by 20th Century Fox. In 1976, author John Ferris's novel was published and immediately acquired by producer Frankie Ablans, who hired Ferris to adapt his own story into a screenplay. Next, Ablans brought on director Brian De Palma, with whom he had previously collaborated on Greetings and Carrie. For whatever reason, De Palma expected that Sissy Spacek would agree to come back and play a second consecutive telekinetic character for him, but De Palma was ultimately offered her Carrie co-star Amy Irving for the part of Gillian Belliver, and she was cast. I think it's kind of weird that he signed on to do this movie right after Carrie anyways. Like, isn't a little strange to... I think he wasn't really set in what kind of a director he was going to be, and Carrie had just done gangbusters for him, so he was like, maybe I keep going with this Teleconnect stuff for a while. He didn't know what he was going to make. Yeah, I... I... I guess. I just, I wouldn't want to go straight into the same movie again. Right. I think it's a little, I think it's a little strange, especially if you're going to put the same person in it. Yeah. I, th- I think, especially for Sissy, that would have been a weird choice yeah. to come back and play a very similar but different character in yeah. a different novel adaptation. A different character. Ah. Yeah, no. But also, I feel like the Fury kind of bites off the novel Carrie a little bit. Which is funny because people say that Firestarter rips off the Fury. So mm. it's like Stephen King inspired John Ferris, who then in turn inspired Stephen King again. Did the book come after? I, I, well, clearly it, it probably had to. So the, yeah, the, the original Carrie adaptation the came Carrie out. book. Yes. Carrie was a book first before it was a movie. Before right? the Fury was a book. Yes. So yeah, okay. So I just wanted to make sure that the book predates the other book. Correct. Okay. But Carrie didn't have any psychic powers other than telekinesis, right? It was she didn't have visions of people or well, uh, she could conjure flame from nothing. That's not really okay. Psychokinesis, right? Like that's just moving things. But she she could create flames from nothing. All right, yeah. Okay. So she what is that? Pyrokinesis. Pyro, yeah, exactly. Yeah. De Palma had blamed the absence of a major star for Carrie's lackluster box office, and so sought Kirk Douglas to fill the top billing slot as Peter Sansa, opposite Kirk Douglas. Carrie Snodgrass was brought on after a nearly decade-long absence from film and television roles, and both actors accepted reduced pay to keep the film's budget under $6 million. Looks pretty good for under $6 million, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, I, I very much agree. Producer Yablans made it a point to utilize as many underseen corners of Chicago as he could in the span of their 25-day shoot. Nearly the entire film, save the introductory sequence shot in Israel, was shot in Chicago proper. A local news crew was invited to set for one of their most expensive set pieces when it suddenly occurred to Yablans that audiences wouldn't buy a ticket for a scene they'd already caught on the news and he backed out of the media visit. Oh. <laughs> you have to be like, get out of here. Yeah. Now, I wonder which one was that, like, it probably wasn't the final scene. It was probably like the theme park scene. I think it was the theme park scene. Yeah, that, that would, would make, be my guess. That would make the most sense. Yeah. 
VFX Wizards Rick Baker and William Tuttle took home the Best Makeup Prize at the 6th Annual Saturn Awards for their work on this film. In the early 2000s, rumblings of a potential remake were brewing, and perhaps as a response, three additional books were published to extend the series into a quadrology. All reboot efforts have since been abandoned, but in 2000, The Fury was followed with The Fury and the Terror, The Fury and the Power, and Avenging Fury. I was unable to locate copies fast enough to read or listen before this review, but I will talk through some of the changes from the book to this film, and then give a brief summary of the sequels based on the most descriptive Goodreads reviews I could find. So you're saying the sequels were only in book form? Correct. Okay. After the release of The Fury, Yablans and De Palma nearly reteamed for another telepathic novel adaptation, The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester, winner of the first ever Hugo Award for Science Fiction in 1953. But maybe at that point he decided, I've done enough of these, so I can go on and do the next thing now. Now, see, you have to do one more. You have to. You have, you have to, to finish the, the trilogy. Yeah, it has to be the De Palma telekinesis, telekinesis trilogy. trilogy. Yeah. yeah. Trilogenesis. No, stop. <laughs> get out. Get out. <laughs> I'm gonna get one. This, this episode, I'm gonna get one. I don't think you are. We open picture on a beach in what is only described as Mid-East 1977. I feel like typically this would have said Middle East, not Mid-East, like it's the opposite of the Midwest. This particular sequence is the only piece shot outside of Chicago, specifically in Caesarea, Israel. Peter Sanza, as played by Kirk Douglas, races his son Robin to the beach from the water. His son clearly won the race, but a nearby friend of the family, playing judge, finds in favor of the obvious loser. Close, really close. We will come to know this man as Ben Childress, and he's being played in the film by director John Cassavetes. Eventually, Robin has heard enough gloating from his father, and the two start wrestling hard in the sand. Kirk is in his 60s here, and ripped, by the way, but he seems to be holding his own, wrestling a kid in his mid-20s. Childress is called away to accept a phone call, and when we listen in, it sounds like someone has an important message for Peter. Back at the table on the beach... Father Peter and son Robin discuss a school in Chicago specifically designed to handle kids with Robin's abilities. I just won't fit in there. I feel like some kind of freak. Now what is this? I don't know, maybe if I knew what was wrong with There's you. There's nothing wrong with you. All we learn from their chat is that his talents will, quote, blow people away, and he needs a place to develop them. Childress has been helping them get Robin into the school. When Childress returns to the table, he asks if Robin can give them some privacy, and when Robin's gone, Childress demands Peter hand over a phone number he got from a cute girl working at an antique shop. At first, I wondered why it would be necessary to send Robin away for this harmless request, but it makes more sense in a minute. Peter is retiring from an agency that they've worked at together for 20 years, and Childress says he will miss Peter. Childress steps away to say goodbye to Robin, and when the waiter returns to Peter's table, he is suddenly perforated with deafening gunfire. Regular luncheon for two. The waiter takes several rounds to the chest, but it looks like Peter only got one in the hand. The gunman stands at the railing on top of a nearby tower, but boats full of gunmen in turbans are motoring toward shore, and the crowded beach is quickly vacated. Robin wants desperately to rescue his father, but Childress holds him back, and Peter shouts to them to leave. An Israeli soldier, without a turban, returns fire on the terrorists as they rush ashore, and a few are killed. Peter is crouched in a doorframe in front of a heavy door that he can't wedge open, as bullets ricochet all around him. Bizarrely, he notices a cameraman beside the nearest terrorist. One bad guy gets surprisingly close to Peter, considering the man is using a ranged weapon, also known as an AK-47, but the Israeli gunman takes the terrorist out, and now, ho ho ho, Peter has a gun. 
<laughs> Peter shoots at the cameraman and the gunman on the ledge above him and then runs around the rocks on the beach, one shot killing another handful of bad guys. He steals one of their boats and takes it back out to sea, but three of the terrorists fire on the boat simultaneously until it explodes in a giant ball of fire. I did not understand what he was doing. I think he was just trying to get out of the situation. Yeah. However he could. Oh. Like, we, what, okay. Like, it, it just, it That's just. That's a place that they can't follow him if they don't have their boat anymore. I, I guess. Did he know that they were after him? It did seemed they, like they yeah, were they all were tr- only shooting at him. Trying to shoot at him. I mean, I think the original shots weren't meant for the waiter. Yeah. Um, they really hated that waiter. <laughs> the soup was terrible. Uh, but, like, at this point, I was certain because he saw the camera, like, and then they shoot at him in the boat but they're not hitting him where i feel like they should be hitting him so right. i was like oh this is all planned this is yeah. this is a ruse that I, I mean it's clear that it's planned but i was certain that peter was in on it right that like, he's trying to trick robin into thinking he's dead for right. some reason like I, I was like i don't know why he wants his son to think he's dead but he must want this but it turns out that's not at all the plan right. he was just trying to get away robin is devastated by the explosion they killed my dad A man named Robertson rushes in and apologizes for the breach in security. Childress hands off Robin to Robertson to take away. After Robin leaves, Childress looks out to see the smoking boat for a moment before moving to congratulate a pair of terrorists on the wall, specifically a gunman and the cameraman. Just offshore, Peter resurfaces in the water and sneaks around the rocks to catch his lifelong friend cooperating with the cameraman terrorist. He glares at them for a moment, and then collects an AK-47 from a dead terrorist in the water and fires it at both of them. One bullet gets Childress in the elbow, and he collapses out of frame. It looked like he died there, but I guess he just got hit in the arm. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't... My note even says, I don't think he's dead. But... Sure, yeah, I, I assumed that he would come back, but it looked like they were implying he at least died from this shot. Peter tosses the gun down and runs away. We cut forward one year to Chicago, 1978, on a beach. Two girls in swimsuits walk along a crowded bike path. One of them, Gillian Belliver, is played by Amy Irving. Her friend quizzes her on important historical dates, but during the quiz, we can see Jim Belushi wandering past them in jean shorts for a brief first film appearance as a beach extra. When her friend asks for the name of the first president of the United Nations General Assembly, Gillian thinks she hears her friend giving her hints. The answer, by the way, is Paul-Henri Spock. LaRue, don't tell me! I didn't say anything. Yes, you did. You said Raymond. I heard you. I did not. Just as Gillian hears someone whisper Raymond Dunwoody, they are passing a strange-looking man digging out of a trash can. He kind of looks like the dad from Coraline if he were seven feet tall. <laughs> and of course, he's being played by De Palma regular William Finley. Yeah, very much like a like a Stephen Merchant yes. kind of vibe. Yeah. I was I was thinking he also reminded me of Malvert a little bit from Stephen Bodies. <laughs> Gillian turns to look at him and realizes that her friend LaRue never said the name. The man starts following them uncomfortably close. When the girls finally notice, he scampers off to a payphone. He calls someone named Mr. Johnson and introduces himself as Raymond Dunwoody. The voice on the phone sounds like Kirk Douglas to me. Raymond says he's found someone who might be able to help him locate Robin Sanza. He tells Peter he found a 17-year-old psychic on the beach and he is instructed to collect her. Behind Raymond, we can see a tree trimmer, but during the phone call, the camera zooms in to a wire the man is holding, which is then strung to a parked van. Inside the van are lots of camera angles on Raymond making this phone call, or maybe the same camera angle on several monitors. The surveillance team track Peter's end of the call to the Plymouth Hotel and move to collect him. 
The agents skid up to the curb outside the Plymouth Hotel for men only, playing itself, and rush in the front doors. It's unlikely, but not impossible, that the hotel was chosen specifically because the Fury was, at the time, a popular car model produced by Plymouth. Do you guys recall the last time we saw agents skid up outside the Plymouth Hotel to apprehend our protagonist? Oh, gosh. Uh, was it a Patreon episode? Nope. I thought for sure that Richard was going to send us screenshots of this today because he would recognize it. Oh, no. Now I'm really embarrassed. The Blues Brothers. Oh, the, my gosh. The doorway the they go in is the same doorway that oh, Carrie Fisher wow. hits with a rocket launcher. I should have seen that. Inside, the agents meet with a blind man at the front desk, the same front desk in the lobby in Blues Brothers, and show him photos of Peter Sanza. He directs them to room 512 and tells them that the man checked in as R.B. Johnson. He gives them the key so they don't destroy his door. It's the last door on the left, and lucky for Peter, he's walking out of it in just his boxers, right as these two agents step into the hallway. He spins back around to hide in the room, and when they kick in the door to chase him, they don't notice he's snuck out onto the fire escape. Do you guys recall the last time our protagonist lived in the last apartment on the left of this hallway in the Plymouth <laughs> Hotel in Chicago? The Blues Brothers? That's right. <laughs> it's literally the exact same apartment. It's probably because it's the most convenient to shoot. <laughs> probably. Though in that film, it's labeled Room 104, not 512. It's for sure the exact same door. And as the agents storm the room, I realized that this tiny apartment set from Blues Brothers was not a fake apartment. It's actually that small, and it even has the same bed frame in the room for <laughs> Blues Brothers two years later. Outside, Peter leaps from the fire escape to the support beams of the L train and races across the tracks in front of a passing train and then leaps down to grab onto a bar sticking off the building across the street to swing himself into a window on the other side. It has pretty good stunt work here. Yeah, and some of it, I mean, it looks a lot like most of it is Kirk Douglas doing this yeah, in his 60s. And you have to remember, he got shot in that hand a year ago. Yeah. And he's jumping and grabbing onto poles. They really shot him in the hand for that scene. How's the hand? Still a bit stiff. <laughs> <laughs> The men in his apartment report they have lost him to Childress in the car on the street. In Peter's tiny apartment, they find newspaper clippings about Raymond Dunwoody having located a missing heiress, which is presumably how Peter found him to locate Robin. So he is, in fact, a famous psychic? Yeah, he's kind of like a Professor X in that he can locate other psychics. So was he just in disguise on the street? Or was he? is he just No, I think he ridden? just operates as Raymond Dunwoody. He's like a private eye, but he's a psychic. Okay. So when he was just like digging through the trash, he was just kind of like... He was pretending to do that while he yeah. looked for psychics okay. in a okay. crowded place for Peter. He knew she was going to be there. Oh, what? how would he know? Oh, because he's yeah. psychic, mm -hmm. yeah. Suddenly we cut to the apartment of an older couple bickering about the state of the country. The woman, Vivian, is cooking on a stove when she hears her elderly mother-in-law, Mother Knuckles, calling for help. Vivian assumes she needs assistance in the bathroom, but Mother Knuckles says that's not the problem. Somebody's in my room. Peter steps out from behind her in just his boxers with a gun and asks only for clothes. Vivian says if they lived in a better neighborhood, this would never have happened. The man asks Peter to confirm that all he's looking for are clothes, and when Peter adds a bit of cash to his wish list, the man seems exasperated. We cut to a classroom at Gillian's school where the students are learning about biofeedback. As a demonstration, a woman named Hester is seated at a table with a device attached to her forehead and a model train on a track in front of her. Now, I was trying to figure out, is this just a coincidence that this girl happens to go to a private school who invited a psychic institute to come and do a demonstration? Either that, 
or the people that are tracking Raymond Dunwoody to find Peter also had, listened had, in on the other half of the conversation and said, that girl's a psychic, let's infiltrate so the they, school. So they were specifically targeting her with this demonstration. Her or her friend, because they didn't know which one was psychic. So they, they went to the school where both of the girls would be. But they did pick her out in this scene. They did. And I assume demo. if she hadn't been able to do anything with it, that yeah. they would have invited her friend up, mm. LaRue. This is a graphic example of biofeedback. We're converting the very low voltage alpha wave energy into electricity to run that train. And that train will only run when my friend Hester is in alpha. The woman leading this demonstration for the class is Dr. Ellen Lindstrom from the Paragon Institute. She points to a magnetometer on the table, which is being used to record Hester's electromagnetic field. Do you guys recall the last film of ours to make mention of a magnetometer where we disagreed on the pronunciation? Magnetometer. Oh. Um. They were using one to measure the relative magnetic force of something from outer space. Uh, Hangar 18? Hangar 18 is correct. All right. Nice. That was a guess. Nice one. A few of the girls in the class are trading notes and making jokes, ignoring the lecture. We will learn their names are Cheryl and Pam, and Pam here is being played by Daryl Hannah in her first feature film appearance, which I know we already said about Hard Country, but we lied to you, listeners. <laughs> this is her first feature film appearance, but she doesn't really have many lines in this one. Gillian is invited to try the experiment. I'm actually not clear on how the school was conned into this presentation, but it doesn't seem like they're here by coincidence. It seems like they're seeking her out since they called her up first. Yeah. As soon as Gillian is attached, she is told to focus on a blank screen in her mind, and the train is instantly going faster than Hester ever made it go. Gillian looks in a trance, and the rest of the room seems surprised. The camera rotates 90 degrees at a time from a chart of psychic abilities to the gossiping girls to Gillian's blank face to Hester and LaRue looking at each other in surprise. And we see that rotated three mm -hmm. or four times. And every time Hester and LaRue turn and look at each other and make the same, oh, surprised face. Suddenly, Gillian's vision is filled with the image of a woman's bloody corpse on the floor. She's shocked up out of her chair by the sight and the train goes flying off the tracks into the corner of the room. I mean, I think it's pretty clear at this point that that vision was Hester. It's not Hester. It's not? No. Oh, okay. I thought it was. Well, it isn't. But it could be confused for her. It does look a lot like Carrie Snodgrass, but it's not her. Cheryl and Pam laugh about Gillian being frightened by a toy train. We cut back to the apartment across the street from Peter's place, and he's still here. <laughs> not only hasn't he left, but he's taken the couple who own the place hostage, and they're tied up on the couch. Mother Knuckles is helping him to work on a disguise and provides him with white shoe polish for his hair. She even gives him a full breakfast meal, which I think we saw Vivian cooking earlier. <laughs> so she's like, they tied her up and then gave the food she was cooking to this man. Yeah, Mother Knuckles is like one of the best characters yeah. in this. I mean, like, uh, she's just such a randomly fun character yeah. to have in this and, and it feels like uh, a relationship partner for the Peter character here. How long do you think you'll be staying? Oh, shut up, Vivian. Let the boy enjoy his breakfast. Thank you. What is it they want you for? Mm, a high level security risk. Mm -hmm. Back at the school, one of the gossipy girls, Cheryl, is pulling things out of her locker and a friend asks if she's gotten her period yet. Apparently she's a couple weeks overdue and grumpy about it. Gillian takes a seat in the cafeteria, but Pam claims she was saving that seat for Cheryl. Pam is mortified when Cheryl shows up and doesn't have a chair. 
Cheryl makes it known that she is not happy by picking on Gillian for having weird psychic powers, or at least claiming to. When they blow her off, Cheryl tells Gillian to read her mind to prove it wasn't just a scheme to get attention. Why are you sitting with these people? Yeah. They, they clearly are not your I friends. I mean, chairs seem to be scarce. <laughs> After refusing for a while, Gillian obliges. Well, Cheryl, you don't want everyone to know that you're pregnant, do you? What? I'd like for you to explain that little Cheryl. remark. Just what do you think you know about me? She grabs Gillian's hand hard, and Gillian demands she let go. When Cheryl refuses, her nose is suddenly gushing blood. Gillian blames herself and is horrified by what she's done. Cheryl tries to clean it with a napkin, but it just keeps getting worse. Late that night, Peter is insanely still at Mother Knuckles' apartment. <laughs> his hair is bright white now, and he stuffs a pillow into his shirt to poorly emulate a gut. He just looks like a cartoon even, of an old man. He doesn't even fully button the shirt. <laughs> I don't even know if he needed to color his hair. It already kind of looked white. I, I this feel is barely like, a disguise. Yeah, I was going to say, as disguises go, and, and the fact that he's supposed to be like this smart man that works yeah. for like some unknown government agency you yeah. think he'd be better at disguising himself i mean yeah. you'd be better off just like literally putting a hat on and some sunglasses yeah <laughs> vivian and her husband are now gagged on the couch on his way out peter asks mother knuckles to wait some time before untying her daughter-in-law and son mother knuckles tells him she hopes he finds his son and that he's welcome to shoot as many federal agents as he pleases and if the feds get in your way shoot him just shoot them. It's all they deserve. Peter gives Mother Knuckles a quick peck on the cheek on his way out. As Peter steps onto the street, he is quickly spotted by a pair of muggers looking for an easy target. They try to take a bag out of his hand, and he pulls a gun on them instantly so they scatter. He's surrounded by agents with walkie-talkies and identified fairly quickly, so the last 12 hours with Mother Knuckles have been a complete waste. Yeah. You could have just handed over the bag. It only had cookies in it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have. <laughs> if I had a gun, then you're not taking my cookies. But then he just drops the bag anyway and just continues on. It's like, oh. Yeah, that's true. Well, like, I feel like he would have drawn less attention to himself if he hadn't pulled out a gun. If he was just an old man that got robbed, nobody would have cared. Walking down the middle of the street, Peter spots a pair of cops in an unmarked vehicle. He knocks on the passenger side window looking for a ride out of this surveillance zone. Can I help you, Pop? You're under arrest. What? <laughs> you're under arrest for impersonating police officers. <laughs> Hey, 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 look out, what the hell? Hey, buddy, got pieces in my armpit, but... He climbs into the car and jabs his gun into the passenger's ribs before telling them to get out of here. They do a bit of evasive maneuvers to get away from the agents tailing Peter. The cop driving is played by Dennis Franz, who we've seen so far as another cop in Dress to Kill and as a sort of private eye slash amateur photographer in Blowout. Franz tells Peter that the car is new and he would like it if nothing happened to it. What do you suppose he's telling those cops? Whatever it is, they won't believe him. When Peter complains to himself that the people after him are talented, the cops seem to think he's imagining the people chasing him, even though they were just followed through a tight alley by multiple cars. They speed past the Chicago Sun-Times building. Do you guys recall the last time we saw the Chicago Sun-Times building? Continental oh. Divide? That's right. Nice. Starring another Belushi who worked there. The passenger cop, Marty, tries to retrieve a gun from Francis Holster, but Peter knows what they're up to. Unclear at this point, or for the rest of the film, whether Peter has any powers. So far, he seems to have crazy old man strength and urban parkour skills, but <laughs> I can't tell if he's spying on these people psychically to predict their moves or not. 
He points out that two sedans have been following them this entire time, and only now does Dennis Franz, who we learn here is named Bob, notice that Peter isn't completely crazy. There are cars following them. How did the cops not notice that there's cars following them? Because they're distracted by the gunman in their front seat, I think. Bob is instructed to lose the cars by blowing through a red light and heading to a bridge that is still under construction. When the sedans follow them across the intersection, it's all the confirmation Bob needs that they are, in fact, being chased. Bob speeds down the bridge into a blinding fog. Somehow, Peter and the cops are able to play a lot of tricks on these men by driving around them and honking and blasting lights. Uh, I like that Childress is just like, no, we're done here. Yeah, like, you guys chase them around. I'm not <laughs> going, I'm not on going the in there. <laughs> Eventually, one of the agents pulls out a machine gun and fires into a sedan he thought had Peter and the cops in it, but he inadvertently kills two of his own agents. I don't understand how this, this bridge, only this bridge, is in a bunch of fog. Yeah. <laughs> it's very just this, weird. It's very localized <laughs> weather. Jesus. How the hell was that? They notice the car they're supposed to be chasing and open fire again. They're tricked into driving off a ramp into a somehow flammable river as a fireball <laughs> explodes from the hole the car disappeared into. Yeah, yeah. the car drives off the, the edge of the cliff and it's this really long, whoa. Yeah. And then a fireball comes up. <laughs> it's like, it's like, is this like a 200 foot drop? And if it is, then that means the fireball had to go up that high to get back to the top. <laughs> But also, when we see this same drop later, it's about 14 feet. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, no, because uh, that's what I thought. I thought that as well. When he drives the car off into the water. Yeah. Uh, they they drive somewhere. A part? They drive somewhere else. Okay. It, it, it's a very, it, it looks like the car is just sitting in the fog because the fog is so thick, but they are actually driving somewhere else. Okay, interesting. Bob is ecstatic to see that in all the gunfire and stunt driving that his car is unscathed. Peter tells the men to toss their guns into the water, and his pants fall around his ankles. For some reason, the cops seem to assume that he's about to rape them. <laughs> <laughs> he gives them a message to deliver to Childress, but do these guys know Childress? I think no. they're just cops. Yeah. I think he's assuming that Childress is going to interrogate them Maybe. for more information. You see Childress, ask him if it was worth his arm. What happened to his arm, Peter? I killed it with a machine gun. <laughs> such a great line uh peter gets behind the wheel of bob's car and demands that childress follow him before backing the car straight backward and then pulling it forward off a ramp into the water again he seems super powered to attempt this and expect to survive it no problem like did he do that on accident I, I, why I, did he drive this car yeah, into the river he, he could have just tossed the keys into the water and have the same effect I, it's just his mo he likes this is to, how he, he loses people to, in water he <laughs> likes to pretend to die in water okay that's his thing i'm not gonna kink shame i'm not gonna kirk shame do you guys recall the next time we'll see a member of the douglas family drive a car into water and successfully escape i think we've only covered one the like, next time yeah Oh, you're saying From we haven't Douglas covered it? the family, correct. Oh. We won't cover it. It's in the 90s. Or the aughts, maybe. The game? The game. Mm. Did I get right. it right? Yep. Oh, nice. He drives off the pier in the cab, and then he has to get out of the car before he drowns. Did it. We cut to a fancy hotel as a chauffeur pulls up and opens the door for a woman. We will learn this is Gillian's mother, and she heads to her daughter's bedroom to discuss the nosebleed interaction today. Gillian feels guilty about what happened, but her mother insists it's impossible that it's her fault, and she won't even let her mother touch her because she's so afraid she'll hurt people. There's this really awkward moment where, I think it's when she reaches to touch her, and she 
Gillian turns away, goes, no, mother. But then yeah. we turns around. There's a portrait of her mother sitting on the <laughs> table. But the mother's face is just in profile. Turned away. Turned away. <laughs> I was like, like her mother is like, no, daughter. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is this? this is such a weird framed photo of your mother? Yeah. Just because it, it's not like her in it's it's her entire headshot, but just a profile. So like, I mean, that's an old fashioned portrait thing that people is used it? to do. Yeah. yeah. Doing it, silhouettes. Oh man, it, I've never. It just, it just, it made me laugh because yeah. I never see, like that's not the port picture of like of my mother that I would have yeah. on my bedside. Just looking exactly sideways. Do you have a framed picture of your mother on her bedside? Um, I do have a, a photo of my mother in my room. Yes, it's like this is the only. Th- this is as close to looking at me as my mother this has ever been. This is what I like to see just when I profile. fall asleep at night. <laughs> okay, well, in my defense, I also have photos of my brother and my sister and my grandmother. You're not helping, you weirdo. <laughs> I love my family. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> Screw you guys. <laughs> I'm going home. <laughs> I I also have two Evangelion posters. <laughs> yeah, your this family. Is That's what weirder. I said. <laughs> no, that actually makes it cool again. This shot of Gillian backing away from her mom reminds me of the first scene with Rogue in X Men. Apparently, Rogue debuted as a comic book character one year after this film's release, hmm. so it's possible that Gillian here was an inspiration for her. Her mother thinks a psychiatrist might be able to help in Gillian's situation. We cut across town to a phone ringing in an apartment until Hester finds it and answers it. She mistakes the heavy breathing over the phone for a pervert calling, but somehow Peter convinces her it's not a creepy pervert by saying, I need, I need, I need your body, baby. Come on, baby, it's me. Oh, oh my God. Well, she recognized it for the last time. He must have said that. Is this his passphrase that <laughs> yeah. he came up with? They have two-factor authentication, and he just has to read a random perverted phrase. And But then she hangs up the phone, and it just cuts to them being together yeah, already. Yeah, she like, found him already. I know like, what that means. If he says, I need three times, it means that he's in the phone booth by the water. Right. It's very where I w- always find him. <laughs> with his pants down. Yeah, he's always drenched from another water escape. <laughs> She races downstairs to a van and picks Peter up from wherever he swam ashore. He's hiding in the back of the van as she drives him somewhere. Hester works at Paragon in some ancillary capacity and read through some of their records to learn that Robin is dead. But Peter suggests that that's exactly what Paragon would make it look like. Is she not psychic? I thought that no. was the whole no, purpose of the- No, she's not a psychic. She's, the, she's a member she, of the staff there. But the, but the- but that she can control- Anybody has alpha powers. Yeah, that's what it's, they said at the beginning. Anybody okay. could do that. Yeah. They park the van on the top of a parking structure and then stay till morning. We cut back inside the van the next day and we see them naked together in the sheets of the bed in the back seat. Hester promises Peter she'll do whatever she can to help him find Robin. Gillian and her mother pull up outside the Paragon Institute. Her mother is skeptical, but Gillian was intrigued by what she saw in her class. Paragon Institute. Sounds like a haven for quacks. But the references are good. It's right up there on the left. It's like, what references did they give you, lady? Like, she seems very easy to convince. Dr. Lindstrom greets them at the door, and apparently Gillian's mother, Mrs. Belliver, recognizes the house as the former home of a friend? I don't know the point of that detail. Yeah. I've been here before. This was Babe Gifford's house. Yes, we bought the house from the Giffords. It was so beautifully furnished, we tried to make as few alterations as possible. I'm I'm wondering if does that mean that they killed them? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> like the Clopex. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Jim McKeever enters, played by Charles Durning, and introduces himself. 
He explains to Mrs. Belliver why they intend to keep Gillian here overnight during her stay. McKeever shows her a workshop on telepathy happening right now. We see subjects being tested with Zener cards like the start of Ghostbusters. What's this one? It's, it's a couple of wavy lines. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. <laughs> no. She'll only be here a couple of weeks, and when Mrs. Belliver tries to kiss her daughter goodbye, Gillian capably dodges the kiss, not wanting to hurt her mom. Gillian is led to a room by Large Marge, but wait a minute. Large Marge died ten years ago, <laughs> on a night just like tonight. Why, tonight's the anniversary. Worst accident I ever seen. Okay, so it's not Large Marge, but it is Alice Nunn who plays Large Marge in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. She's here playing, I think, a housekeeper named yeah. Mrs. Callahan. We dissolve right to Gillian on a walk with Dr. McKeever. He tells her that because she doesn't use her powers enough, they are extremely sensitive. Sensitive to what? Bioplasmic universe. Come again? Bioplasmic universe. I like that I like that her explanation also just doesn't explain it at yeah. all. She just kind of like gestures around the room, like yeah. obviously all of this. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> Back in the house that night, we see Hester and Gillian playing an old video game system, specifically a Fairchild Channel F, and having a very good time. Well, it seems like they're not actually playing so much. They're just watching footage yeah, of people it, playing? Well, re remembering my old Atari 2600, that uh, there'd always be some kind of demo of the games going. Oh, okay. And uh, specifically, like some of those games looked very familiar. Uh, like the, that specific game that you're watching play? Yeah. You think it was the demo? Uh, like, I, I feel like the game was called Combat, and it had like tank combat, but also had airplane combat. Yeah, it's definitely jump cutting between a few different games. But that, but that's standard if you're hitting the the game select button on the Atari. Oh, okay. So like, because the car, you put in a cartridge. Um, I don't know how familiar everyone was with an Atari, um, but there's uh, some cartridges had multiple types of games, and there was a game select, and it was a toggle switch that would go up and then spring loaded back down. Okay. And every time you flicked it, it would it basically switched to switch a different to a program. Different, yeah. Uh, that seems to be what was happening, and they're 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 not able to. But figure they're out. also jump cutting with the game every time. Yeah. Now, so yeah. The next day, she is tested with Zener cards and passes the test flawlessly. Incredible. Five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. Later, we see Hester and Gillian enjoying an ice cream brunch as a reward for all the hard work Gillian's been doing. Uh, during the kind of like training uh, life montage, uh, I should mention that. We should mention now that uh, John Williams did the score. Right, yeah. And, and the score for this whole montage is like super Harry Potter-like like days passing at Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's super charming and whimsical. I was like, oh my gosh. Makes it look very fun. Yeah, this is, I, I feel like I'm at Hogwarts with this music playing. Yeah. You're a psychic, Harry. Gillian's meal looks very delicious until at the last second she grabs a big handful of coconut shavings and fucks it all the way up. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> Later we see Gillian walking with Dr. McKeever up some stairs and when she loses her balance, she grips his hand. When her fingers touch a scar on the back of his hand, she is suddenly transported into a vision from his past. It is rear-projected on a wall, and Amy Irving is standing in front of the projection, so she seems simultaneously a part of the scene, but mystically separated from it. As the camera rotates around the action of the scene, Gillian also spins in frame to match the motion of the vision. She sees Robin Sanza trying to escape this building and being chased all over by the staff of the Institute. Eventually, he backs up to a window off the front of the building, and it's unclear if McKeever pushes him through it or if Robin backs out of it to escape him. 
McKeever slices open his hand on the shattered window, reaching for the boy, and then back in the present, we see the scar on McKeever's hand has opened up and is actively bleeding again. I, oh, I, I don't think I realized that they were connected injuries. I like I think that I was thinking that she was digging her nails into his hand as she no, was No, no, he, he already had a scar mm. that had healed over, but it was reactivated by yeah. this vision. That it, makes sense. It, it seems her bleeding can affect any, like, basically any weak point on your body. Yeah. So for in the case of Cheryl, that she was, quote unquote, prone to nosebleeds. Right, that that's why her, it made her, her weak bleed point. more. Mm. And if she had, lost too much blood, it could yeah. endanger the pregnancy, I assume. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I thought that was funny. Because uh, <laughs> you're a monster? <laughs> <laughs> Gillian's hands are drenched in blood, and she demands nobody touch her again so she can't keep hurting people by accident. And then she wipes her bloody hand on the fabric wallpaper and runs back to her room. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> I saw the blood. That's why they have the housekeeper. That's gross. <laughs> Poor large Marge <laughs> scrubbing the walls. Get some club soda on there before it sets. Hester parks the sex van outside the institute and heads inside for <laughs> and heads inside after hours. The institute are having some kind of secret board meeting around a long table in an office with no lights on. McKeever is putting together a plan of who can deal with Gillian because anyone with a history of bleeding in any way shouldn't be around her. Like a history of bleeding in any way. Like, yeah, well he says specifically I've never been hurt before in yeah. my life. I'll go in there. Perfect. <laughs> Only you. No, but he, he calls out specifically here, he says, Esther, Kristen, Lorraine, if you girls are into your monthlies, I don't want you around when Gillian is testing. Are you serious? I'm very serious. Gillian's power to psychometrize is spontaneous. She creates an enormously powerful electromagnetic field. Almost everyone exposed to it will bleed. Some will bleed a little, some a lot. What is this kid, a vampire? You want to continue working here? But I don't understand that because obviously his wound from, you know, like being scratched by the glass was yeah. was probably months or a year old. Like it probably was not. Yeah, recent. at least months. And, and I would say that honestly, if that wound were healed up, that it might actually be less likely to bleed than yeah. just the back of a hand. But for whatever reason, it reactivates injuries. Yeah, but it, I mean, I'm just saying like, Women are bleeding every month. They're, that is, you know, if that's they should if that's never be around when she's if testing. If that's considered yeah. an injury, then no women should be ever near her. That's true. Do you guys recall the last time someone suspected the threat of being a vampire? Hint: It's a movie that hasn't posted yet. <laughs> Do you guys remember a quote-unquote scientist saying, "Yeah, it could be a vampire"? Oh crap! I don't remember what we just recorded. Uh, the <laughs> night, night of the Lepus. Night of the Lepus or uh. Lepus. So, what have we got here? Vampires? Possibly. McKeever's wound opens up again under his bandages, and he bleeds on the table as they hold the meeting. That night, Gillian is sedated in bed so McKeever, Hester, and Dr. Lindstrom can speak to her. They ask what she saw in her vision when she made McKeever bleed on the stairs, and she answers in a split diopter shot, with Hester in focus in the background, while Gillian sweats and answers in the foreground. She says she saw Robin in her vision. The staff seem shocked by a psychic link between their two most powerful subjects. McKeever intends to send Gillian home immediately to avoid another disaster like what happened with Robin. They never spell it out in the film, but in the book, it is explicitly stated that Gillian and Robin are actually twins. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's weird. Um, 
does the doctor know that Robin, the doctor knows that Robin's still alive or does I the think doctor so, yes. think yeah. that he's dead? He knows that they took Robin away okay. and that they that they intend to use him as a weapon. McKeever makes an interesting point that in a tribal society, these children would be valued above all others as magician types, but in America, they are only feared. But there is no place for these kids in our culture because they're so superior to what we hold sacred. And what a culture can't assimilate, it destroys. Lindstrom asks McKeever what really happened to Robin, and McKeever claims that he was running fast over the steps and fell through the window out of the building. But he claims he wasn't there when it happened, even though we've seen in Gillian's vision that he was, and that's where he cut his hand. Lindstrom invites McKeever back to her place for some breakfast, since it's after 4 a.m. now, and he turns the offer down, preferring instead to drink liquor by himself in his office. The next morning, we see Hester opening a cabinet in the hall while Childress finds McKeever asleep in his office. He starts opening windows to wake the man. Childress asks McKeever why his arm, in a sling, still hurts even though it's totally dead. I killed it with a machine gun. <laughs> so, at first when I saw his hand in the sling and the, the blackness at the end, I was like, oh god, is that the hand? Like, is oh, it like all it like black and, and rotted? It was like, oh no, he's got a glove on. But then even still, I was like, wait, so is it completely... I, I, he makes the point that it's paralyzed from like the elbow down. Yeah. But it, it still hurts because it's like phantom limb syndrome. See, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, I was misinterpreting when they were saying it's it's dead, like dead numb. Right. So, to me, like dead, I thought it was like it was like like necro, necro, necrotized. No. If it was like, literally black like that, they would yeah, cut it off. That, 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 but see, that's what I was thinking. I was like, why does he still have an arm if it's if it's all messed <laughs> up? Well, I mean, him. not that John Cassavetes isn't committed to his craft, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're going to let him cut his arm off for a movie. Well, no, but you, mean, uh, you know, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're in a house with a known or a potential psychic, maybe don't have this conversation in a room that's like right next to her. I mean, what good are walls <laughs> like in this place? That's what I'm saying. It's go, full of psychics. You could have this conversation else. on the other oh, side of the planet. They just still them. listen. Yeah. <laughs> Childress starts asking about their new patient, Gillian Belliver. He wants to know if she's anywhere near as powerful as Robin. Hester listens in on the conversation from outside. Childress talks about Robin like he's still alive and being experimented on. He claims the boy no longer cares whether his father is dead or alive. Their secret organization is the envy of all their international rivals. Chinese don't have one. Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sanza. Unless it's this girl. McKeever insists the girl is a fake and he's sending her home immediately, but Childress isn't buying it. He will staff this facility with extra agents for security to keep her here. Outside, a security team and a van full of monitors are surveilling the building, and in their closed-circuit footage, we can see Hester ask Kristen where McKeever is today. She learns that McKeever headed out to Medtronics to test some new equipment. Do you guys recall the last time we referred to Medtronics on the show? Oh, it sounds familiar. I don't. It's a ways back. Just tell me what you want. Oh, oh, so, wow. That is a waste. When bet. Alan King ends up in the hospital, he tells his doctors he doesn't want to end up with some crappy Medtronics battery in his pacemaker. Lindstrom goes to join Gillian for breakfast, and Gillian apologizes about causing McKeever to bleed yesterday. She asks if they can fix whatever caused her to do that. Lindstrom asks if she remembers the conversation they had last night about her vision, but it sounds like they have successfully wiped her memory 
of the vision of Robin because she doesn't even remember them talking about it. So you don't remember anything about Robin Sansa? Oh, who's Robin Sansa? He's a boy your age, with powers like yours. Like me? Well, where is he? I mean, do you think I could talk to him? Shit, now we gotta do it again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shit, sorry. Why did, why did I say this? Anyway, aren't you feeling tired? Lindstrom takes out photos of Robin, and Gillian says she feels like she knows him. She's able to psychically link with him from here, and detects that he's being experimented on as we speak. There's a team observing him in a dark room with lots of scientific equipment, including another magnetometer, to detect if dangerous levels of magnetism may cause bleeding for the observing scientists. Or equipment, probably. <laughs> it's like yeah. a CAT scan. They just get sucked into him. We, we can't use any of these monitors because the, 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 they all need to be degaussed. <laughs> yeah, They're just constantly degaussing. Gillian is wearing Robin's consciousness like a VR headset. She can turn his head and force him to watch a monitor, and the footage of the attack on the Israeli beach plays out in front of him. It looks like Lindstrom is using Gillian to learn Robin's whereabouts, and the scientists observing Robin have no idea that Gillian is inside and can see what he sees. As a scientist instructs Robin to keep watching, Gillian controls his head and forces him to watch. Lindstrom demands to know where Robin is being kept, and when Gillian grabs her hand to transmit the vision, Blood starts gushing out from her nail beds, and it's terrifying. Yeah. We see tight inserts from the attack on the beach of bullets ricocheting off stone walls around Peter and the boat exploding in the water. By the time Gillian breaks out of the vision, she looks down at the glass table in front of her, drenched in Lindstrom's blood. Lindstrom is now bleeding from her hands, eyes, and mouth, and collapses unconscious on the glass table, but sadly not through it like I'd hoped. Is this the vision she saw when she was doing the train? Nope. Okay. Are we ever going to find out with the vision? Nope. Yeah, no, we will, we will. We cut back to Gillian's bedroom, and she is being visited by another member of the staff here. She's given a sedative and aspirin to make her feel better. She wants to know how Lindstrom is doing, and the woman insists everything is okay. She's just having a sleepy time. She's not around right now. Gillian tries to force her way out of bed, but is spooked by Childress standing in her doorway and lays back down. He demands Gillian be transported to the PSI facility tomorrow. I guess PSI is the name of the CIA-esque secret government agency who have taken custody of Robin Sansa. In the book, they're referred to as MORG, M-O-R-G, which stands for Multiphasic Operations Research Group. Do you guys recall the last time we used the initials PSI to describe psychological mumbo-jumbo? No, you don't, because it was a mini-sode review of a direct-to-video <laughs> movie called PSI Factor. McKeever warns wait, Childress. Wait, wait. Do we know what the PSI stands for? Is it like a PSI is psychological a Greek security no. institute or something? No, like that? PSI is a Greek letter that is used as shorthand for paranormal oh. in, in various circumstances. Also stands for pounds per square inch. That's true too. When you're inflating your tires <laughs> or your blood pressure. But it also could be like a psychic security investigators. <laughs> I don't know. McKeever warns Childress that moving Gillian is risky because her family is rich and it could cause problems for them. Childress doesn't dignify this concern with a response. It's like, we're a secret government agency. I yeah. don't fucking care how much money these people have. And I like how Robertson, like, like as a toady, like, gives the same glare yeah. as before he walks so away. So you might as well just laugh at him and blow a raspberry in his face. We cut to a mall with lots of trees inside. Peter and Hester are meeting here and trying to keep a low profile. When he finds her, he walks past her and she follows him. 
This is actually Chicago's famous Water Tower Place and shows up in later films like Ordinary People from our first season, Poltergeist 3, and much later, The Dark Knight in 2008. It seems like Peter is asking Hester to smuggle Gillian out of Paragon. She's invited to tell Gillian everything, if that helps. What do I say to Gillian? Tell her everything. Tell her what they did to Robin. They did the same thing to her. Peter intends to use this girl to find his son, and she must escape the Paragon Institute tomorrow. At night, Gillian rises from her bed as if responding to some invisible beacon. She moves downstairs in the dark, but pauses with her hand on the railing, and then follows the invisible signal back up to another bedroom. She flips on a light switch, and it's suddenly daytime. I actually really like the way this shot works. Yeah. Um, But she flips the switch, and then suddenly there's a woman standing there, who we will come to know as Susan Charles, right next to the switch, speaking to Robin on the bed next to them. But when Gillian looks at the bed, she just sees the empty bed that's in the room now. Though she can't see him, she can hear Robin speaking to Susan from the bed, And when she reaches out to the empty mattress, when her fingers connect with where Robin's foot would be, he appears in the bed. It seems like Robin is in a romantic relationship with Susan Charles, and she's trying to coach him into escaping the Institute. She offers to help him escape, but Gillian's vision is interrupted by the arrival of Hester. Gillian? Hi, Hester. I've been looking everywhere for you. This is Robin's room when he was here. Yes, it was. Gillian tells Hester that wherever Robin is now, he's being tortured. And when Hester reaches out to hug her, Gillian is terrified she might hurt this woman by mistake. Weirdly, Hester offers to help Gillian escape and take her to wherever Robin is being held. And Gillian doesn't recognize this exact conversation from how it just played out on the bed between Robin and Susan in the same room. Maybe it's because Hester didn't bleed when they touched, but for some reason she trusts this employee of the Institute to smuggle her out just like Susan couldn't successfully do for Robin. Hester tries to earn Gillian's trust by showing her the medicine she's supposed to sedate Gillian with and asking her to pretend she has taken it. She offers to tell Gillian everything she knows, and we cut to the next morning. We're in the backyard of a chateau somewhere. This is actually the PSI headquarters, filmed at a Georgian-style mansion in Lake Forest, where Robin is practicing pole vault but weirdly failing on every run. Susan and the other doctor, Dr. Ives, observing him, inform Childress that they can no longer drug Robin because drugs have no effect. He's getting more and more powerful and quickly approaching the destructive capability of a nuclear bomb. Susan tells Childress that while Robin's brain is quite advanced, his body hasn't caught up, and he flies into a rage whenever it fails him. Childress asks if he's gotten any better at sex. How is he performing in bed? Robin wants to please me. That's the main thing, isn't it? Susan asks for a month vacation for her and Robin together, but Childress is reluctant to approve. Eventually, he grants them a 24-hour trip, and we cut to Robin and Susan at a sort of indoor fairgrounds. Robin finds her in a gift shop with two men from the Institute and assumes she will cheat with one or both of them. He storms away to an enormous indoor amusement park area with tilt-a-whirls, roller coasters, and Ferris wheels. This was actually a short-lived theme park and shopping mall called Old Chicago, located in the Bolingbrook suburb of Chicago until its demolition in 1986. Again, we see lots of Middle Eastern men here in turbans, and Robin assumes these men are affiliated with the ones who killed his father. Clearly, PSI dressed the men who killed Robin's father in turbans, specifically to wield him as a weapon against people from the Middle East. Robin watches two of them board a roller coaster, and when it starts moving, 
The two men waved to more friends in the second-story window of a nearby restaurant, also wearing turbans. As Robin moves through the fairgrounds, electric bulbs on all the rides are exploding in his wake, and a vein on his forehead throbs as he concentrates on the ride he intends to destroy. This makes way more sense now that you say that. Yeah. I don't know if my progressive brain just didn't put two and two together, but I didn't know why he was angry. <laughs> yeah, I think he's definitely remembering what happened to his father. I could have used a flashback or something to tell me that because sure. I didn't put together that that he was specifically angry at the Middle Eastern men. I was just like, he just doesn't like this tilt-a-wheel. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he hates this thing. <laughs> he hates these cans. <laughs> This throbbing vein effect also shows up in the original script for Carrie, but it was cut from the final film for budgetary reasons. I feel like Carrie's better without it, but it looks fine here. The carnival operator loses control of the ride with the men in turbans, and Robin uses telekinesis to unscrew the specific car he wants thrown from the ride. The two men go flying through the window of the restaurant, crushing their friends along the way. Back at the Paragon Institute, the security team protecting Gillian is so bored that they're using their radios to orchestrate the trading of candy for coffee. Uh, top guy two, I have one Hershey bar to trade. Top guy one, I read you. Is that with or without almonds? All right, asshole one and asshole two. Stop following up this frequency. Hester and Kristen are the only two staff members inside the Institute, since McKeever is checking on Dr. Lindstrom as she recovers in the hospital. Hester claims that McKeever requested a specific medicine that they're out of, so she offers to purchase a refill and deliver some packages to the post office. Gillian pretends to be drugged while she eats her breakfast slowly, and her breakfast looks like it's just a big bowl of water. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even look like there's anything in this bowl, but she's eating it with a spoon. Hester leaves the door open a crack and then drops a bunch of stuff on the ground. She slides a package across the floor toward Gillian's feet and then gives her a more blatant command to escape. Oh, for God's sake, move your ass! I, I was concerned at this point, like, oh man, did, did she, someone else drug did her? She yeah, drugged. Yeah, yeah. It feels like that first moment when you think McMurphy's had the lobotomy in Cuckoo's Nest, and he's just faking it to screw with them. Gillian rushes out the door, and Hester chases her on foot. Hester crashes full speed into one of the security men chasing Gillian. Another car full of agents begins driving down the street alongside her as she runs down the sidewalk. More agents run toward her from all directions when suddenly Peter arrives in a taxi and takes aim at a car chasing Gillian down the middle of the street. He fires one shot through the driver's forehead and when the car chasing her skids off to the right side of the road, it collides with Hester and knocks her through the windshield of another parked car. Do you guys recall the last time that Justin Aylett requested a Patreon pick where someone was launched headfirst through the windshield of a parked car and killed? My brain doesn't work that well. It was Oliver Reed. The uh, the burnt offerings? Burnt offerings. Oh. Remember he crashed headfirst through a windshield and died? Oh, yeah. His brain splattered all over his son in the backseat? Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Peter sees the crash happen in slow motion and mourns her certain death. Gillian realizes moments later what has happened behind her and freaks out. Agents are still rushing her from all angles, so Peter starts firing more shots to take them out. Interestingly, the sound is muted, so each shot rings out as a note in John Williams' score. Also, this entire sequence is in slow motion. Yes. Silent and in slow motion. Gillian backs away from Peter, horrified, and he literally picks her up to carry her to safety. Later, they ride together in a bus at night. 
Peter blames himself for Hester's death. I killed her. I knew I would. The first time I said hello. I'm kind of helping me. Gillian begs him to talk more about anything because she doesn't want to fall asleep and have more frightening visions. He shares his liquor with her, suggesting it will help. But she hasn't been having these visions in her sleep, so it doesn't really check out that she's worried about falling asleep. These aren't dreams. An older female passenger, a couple rows ahead of them, gives Peter a disapproving stare as he pours liquor down this girl's gullet, but he tells her that Gillian has a toothache. Gillian asks Peter to describe Robin because she's only experienced the boy's emotions firsthand. She's never seen him except in old photographs. He tells Gillian that Robin's mother died in childbirth and he never found anyone worth remarrying. Hester came the closest, but now she's gone. Peter begins sobbing and Gillian tries to comfort him. She asks him about Robin again to change the subject back, and he admits here that his son was a faster swimmer than him. He asks Gillian how Robin is feeling right now, and she says he's okay. She falls asleep against Peter's shoulder, but then wakes with a startle in the morning to find him abandoning her on the bus. Do you remember the last time uh, we had Amy Irving following a dude on a bus? Honeysuckle Rose? Yeah. (laughs) Nice. She screams to the driver to let her out and chase Peter down. She doesn't want him to leave, but Peter says he paid the driver to take her all the way to Seattle and out of danger from PSI. Presumably they would just hire Raymond Dunwoody to find her again if she disappeared, though. Did he survive from the, earlier in the film? I feel like they would you have taken... You think they killed him? I, well, I, feel I like would use him as a tool if he's that good at finding Maybe, psychics. but then you like lock him up the same way you did, uh, sure. you yeah. did the other guy. When she refuses to board the bus, he slaps her hard, and these were not fake slaps, In fact, it took about 18 takes to get this moment right. And in one of the takes, Amy Irving actually passed out. Like you hit her hard enough to cause her to black out. When she came to, she refused to shoot it again. And later, Kirk Douglas sent her a basket of bruised peaches and said she needed thicker skin. What? Wow. Isn't he a sweetheart? Holy moly. And then they did shoot it again, apparently, right? No, they, they got... You what say, she said. She said she wasn't going to do it again. She told De Palma she's not going to do the scene again. And then later she got a basket of bruised peaches from Kirk. Yeah. But the happy ending here is that sometime later she was working with Michael Douglas playing his wife in traffic. And she told Soderbergh the story but said, don't tell Michael Douglas about it because I'm having a fantastic time working with him. And it's not his fault what his dad did. And Soderbergh told Michael Douglas about it. And so Michael Douglas bought her a basket of fine peaches and said you've always had thick skin like as an apology on I, behalf of his father why wouldn't he buy her something like an avocado like yeah, or, don't, or, don't or, get her or another just a peach. bunch of turtles <laughs> a watermelon eat these fuckers <laughs> here's a watermelon it's got a thick skin yeah she's also deathly allergic to watermelon <laughs> peter is unable to talk gillian back into the bus and out of danger it's too dangerous people around me get killed what's the other people around me get hurt too I make them bleed! They hug each other, and that night they plan an assault on the PSI stronghold. Dr. Susan Charles is trying to take a bath when she's rudely interrupted by Robin, who insists that she's taking too long. Peter and Gillian sneak along the outside wall of the property, and she hones in on an upstairs window with her psychic powers. Yeah, I I don't know what their plan was. I don't either. It, it, but it works. <laughs> they get inside, I yeah. guess. Your plan is get her? <laughs> get her. That was your big plan? Yeah. It was scientific. It was scientific. 
Inside, Robin seems to sense her approach and turns repeatedly to look behind him for whoever's watching. He scratches his fingers on the cloth armrest of a chair, and outside, Gillian can't help scratching her fingers along a stone wall, grinding them down. Susan finds him in the chair and apologizes for their disagreement, and he apologizes too. Susan invites him to join her for dinner and mentions a potential lake trip. Without responding, Robin crosses the room to lock the door. Why did you do that? So nobody could get in? What's the matter, Robin? You know what's the matter. Robin is under the impression that Gillian is being brought here in secret. He thinks she's here to replace him, but Susan claims to have no idea what he's talking about. It only makes him angrier because he assumes she's lying. He predicts that there will soon be five people here to dine together. No, only four, Robin. You can see that the table is set just for four. That's right. I won't be here. I'll be dead. That girl's taking my place after you poisoned me! He kicks the dinner cart across the room and she cowers in fear. Out in the yard, Gillian can sense what Robin is doing and begs him to stop. You Gillian! Stop! Peter drags Gillian across the yard to keep her quiet, but an alarm is already blaring and guard dogs can be heard barking in the distance. Th th this whole sequence also feels very firestarter. Definitely, yeah. Robin commands Susan to get off the ground, and when she doesn't comply, he lifts her into the air with his powers. He turns her to face him and then lifts her several more feet before setting her to spin rapidly in the middle of the room. Robin spins Susan faster and faster until all her blood is pooling in her extremities and starts to rocket out of her veins in all directions across the room. Faster. 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 This stunt was first attempted by actually spinning actress Fiona Lewis over oh, and over, and when she refused to do any more takes, they replaced her with a dummy that Rick Baker had already created, and Lewis was furious that they bothered spinning her when they had this dummy the whole time. Wow. Outside, Gillian and Peter do their best to scale a wall before they're dragged down by the arriving guard dogs. One of them pins Peter to the ground, and another straight up bites Amy Irving's shoulder. You can hear her scream in the shot, and apparently De Palma called cut immediately to check on her, but they left her yelp in the scene according to her son gabriel barreto who guested on the fix a flick podcast to share her experience on the set of the fury so she was actually bitten she was actually bitten by a dog and they left it in the shot and this time watching the movie i saw it it's it's clear as day on screen i have a four second clip i'm going to play the audio into here so you can hear the yelp the little high-pitched squeak at the end of this is the sound of my mom getting bitten by a dog i'm going to show it to you guys because you see it That little yell. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah, hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look at her shoulder. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It like tugs at yeah, her yeah, blouse. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. And that's a German Shepherd biting my mom yeah. on camera forever. Uh, to quote another De Palma movie, is like it's a really great scream. Yep. <laughs> it's a good scream. Later, Peter is brought inside and Childress sits across from him to chat. He congratulates Peter on making it this far. Where's my son? Why don't you give up? Peter crosses the room to attack Childress, but is yanked back by his thugs. Two henchmen try to bust into the room with Robin, and he psychically attacks them and then throws them out the second story window down to the patio below as Gillian rushes into the yard to plead with him to stop. 
Childress allows Peter to head upstairs and see his son. Peter searches for his son in a room thick with dust from all the destruction. He doesn't notice Robin's legs hanging down from above him in the room. Peter finds Susan's body on the floor first, and she's in the same position as she was in Gillian's first vision as she pushed the train and laps around her classroom. Okay, so it's this dead woman. It's this dead woman. There were so many other options. There were. I feel like it would have made more sense for it to have been Hester, Hester because she was in the room and they and had partially contact. responsible for it. Yeah, and, yeah. And and so and so far before and after. She never has visions of the future. Yeah, and we didn't even know who this woman was until almost an hour into the movie. She doesn't show up until, like, the halfway point. You know, and and to see somebody, you know, in that bloodied state is obviously traumatizing. But to see somebody you were just looking at in the same room with would be all the more traumatizing. Yeah, because you're like, wait, that person's right there. That means they're not already dead, so I'm seeing something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. After another moment of searching, Peter finds Robin hovering in the middle of the room. He barely recognizes the monster his son has become. Peter assures Robin that he never gave up, not for a second. He's been searching for him the entire year since they were separated. Robin is unmoved by his father's declaration and screams as he tackles Peter through the same window out onto the edge of the building. Robin nearly tumbles down to the patio below where Gillian watches, but at the last second, Peter catches his arm. He pleads with his son to pull himself up, But instead, Robin uses his free hand to claw at his father's face until Peter lets him go and he splatters on the concrete below. I feel like I might hold onto my kid's arm a little bit longer and not just kill him for scratching my face, but all fathers are different. I mean, I feel like that that's kind of part of the point that he's letting him go because he's realizing that he's become a monster. Yeah, but I just it doesn't make sense that he fought so hard for a year to get his son back yeah. and then here he's like oh you scratch me you jerk just die then yeah it, sh- it should have been a little bit more he like, should have literally taken his eyeball out yeah like d- done something that was really like i'm trying to completely murder yeah. you gillian and peter cry over robin's body robin's eyes glow blue staring into gillian's and then the glow moves to her eyes before subsiding whatever power he had left has been passed on to her In some early trailers, the glow is gold instead of blue, but it was changed to blue in post for whatever reason. Peter throws himself off the roof and crashes down beside his son to die with him. Childress is quick to order the scene scrubbed. All right, get him out of here, get him out of my sight. Somehow, they convince Gillian to stay the night here, and when she wakes up in the morning, she's visited by Childress. He offers her some fresh coffee and plays very nice. How did you sleep? Okay. I was here most of the night. I I guess you don't remember. I can't tell if this means they tried to erase her memory again or not. He assures Gillian it will take time to recover from what she's been through these last few days. Childress then makes blatant references to the deaths of Peter and Robin, so they must not have erased everything, if anything. He tells her that she is all that matters in the world now. He advises her to survive this difficult time and put the tragedies behind her. He offers to help as best he can and assures her that whatever she knows of him has been a lie perpetrated by the man who killed his own son last night. He asks her to trust him and she cries and leans forward with a kiss. She holds it for a while and her lips move over his eye and when she pulls back his eyes are bleeding and he starts to scream finding himself fully blinded. 
He tries to grab at her but can't find her in the room. She follows closely behind him as he throws punches into the mostly empty space. You go to hell. Suddenly, they're both spasming violently as she backs into a corner away from him. Her eyes glow blue as the music reaches a crescendo, and Childress explodes full force in the center of the room, throwing blood and meat everywhere. It's so good. Yeah, it's a really great explosion, and his head comes off upward yeah. toward a camera above him. And then it falls and thumps on the ground. Yes. Yeah. It does a bounce. It's really great. And it's, and it's one of those moments that you get the same... Uh, shot from like a bunch of different they had angles. eight or nine cameras yeah. running simultaneously yeah. for this in the first take the explosion was at a bad angle and none of the cameras had a decent shot on the ejection of blood and meat so they had to spend a week scrubbing blood off the walls to reset the shot oh no and i presumably building a whole new body yeah. unless they had a second one and they were anticipating that yeah do you guys recall the last time a film production had to spend weeks scrubbing blood off the walls to reset the effects for a single shot um i'm gonna say scanners no further back lots of blood like the most blood in any scene the shining Uh, the shining yeah Yeah. there's hardly anything left of the man when the smoke clears and we hard cut to black for scrolling credits from this overhead shot of this demolished body it just cuts to black names roll so i was questioning this ending in that i because is she a killer now or is she even gillian I yeah. thought maybe that Robin had transferred his consciousness much like Michael Ironside's sure, yeah. Michael Ironside's body in scanners. Like, oh, is she even herself anymore? Or did, she, I, or did he being John Malkovich himself into yeah. her brain? I almost feel like it's not that she's not Gillian. It's just that she is now, so powerful now. She's yeah, she's gone over the same edge, you know, that she she's gone past, you know, you know, she's so powerful that she's gone past reason now, just like he had. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think she can be talked off that ledge at this point. Mm. In the book, Gillian actually drowns Childress instead of exploding him, but De Palma was more interested visually in a spontaneous combustion moment. The book also communicates a dread in the minds of Gillian's mother and Peter that their children are, in fact, monsters. And Peter even suspects his own son of being the Antichrist in the book. But... In the book, they are confirmed to be like brother sister twins. Yes. Yeah. Like so, it's like a Darth Vader situation. Like Where they were just raised separately. Yeah. yeah. You don't understand how that could work. What do you mean? I mean, how would Peter not know that? I don't. I don't think. I. I didn't read the book. I just read some of the differences. But I. I think the implication is that he knows that there's two of them. They parent trapped this situation yeah. where they each took one and left. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But they can't be tricked by them trading places. (laughs) They each took one, but the mom died. So it's like, well, the rules are rules. She's got to go into foster care. (laughs) No, we're burying you with your mother. In the sequel books, uh, the first one didn't come out until 2000, and it's called The Fury and the Terror. The lead character of the sequel trilogy is Eden Waring, the daughter of Gillian Belliver. And in the first book, she has inherited her mother's gifts and predicts a plane crashing at her college graduation ceremony. It's a morgue plane. That's M-O-R-G, the organization from the film, not a plane (laughs) full of frozen bodies. (laughs) Transporting the current Avatar, which is their nickname for the strongest known psychic, but Eden gives herself away by warning classmates of the tragedy in advance, so Morg pursues her. Eden's consequent psychic investigation puts her on the trail to identifying psychic spies working within the White House to overthrow the government. 
And I think one of the morgues is even the first lady or something like mm. that. In the second book of this trilogy, The Fury and the Power, published in 2003, Eden is now the avatar and somehow learns the ability to create a perfect doppelganger of herself, which she nicknames Gwen. Gwen is every bit as powerful as Eden, perhaps even more so, with powers of invisibility and time travel. Mm. But together, they come up against what is essentially God's evil twin, Mordant. <laughs> he takes on a human form and lays the groundwork for complete global domination. Uh, Mordant. <laughs> I, we needed to make a movie of that one. Yes. In the third book of this trilogy, Avenging Fury 2008, after defeating Mordant's human form, she must face off against the cult of Mordant followers hell-bent on resurrecting him, while at the same time, Eden's doppelganger, Gwen, goes back in time to Georgia in the 1920s to battle an older form of Mordant, but encounters an older, even more powerful force named Delilah back there in the <laughs> 20s who was apparently defeated between then and now. Oh, I really wanted you to tell me that the the older form was just Hitler. (laughs) Worse than God's evil twin? Uh, Yeah, that's that trilogy. It seems like it keeps trying to one-up itself as crazily as it can, and and, uh, it's just nuts by the end. But I still want all three of those to get made. Yeah. (laughs) And I will ask an AI to do it at some point. (laughs) Make the rest of those scary movies, please. Make Mordant... Javier Bardem. <laughs> yes. I need more Mordant. Yeah, this movie is pretty fun. I I really love that first scene on the beach where Kirk is just going full ape shit like Charlton Heston action moment where he's yeah. just picking up AKs and shooting at everybody and somehow never gets hit with anything. I, I, I do think it's weird that they never explain why this 60-year-old dude is ripped and yeah. survives an exploding boat without diving out. We saw him not dive out of this boat right. that exploded. Yeah. And then he drives a car off a bridge and he's like jumping like a fucking chimpanzee across like mm-hmm. the L train. It's like, how but, is he doing this? But also being forced to retire for some reason. Right, right, right. <laughs> and he can tell when cops are planning to pull guns and shoot at him before they do it. It's like, does he have powers? Because the books seem to imply that the powers are inherited. So maybe the son got them from him. And when we start the book and the movie, he's retiring from having worked at an agency with Childress for 20 years. Is that PSI? Did he work at PSI? Mm -hmm. And just by miraculous coincidence, his son is a psychic? Or did he take some like... Or as a psychic working for PSI. Did he inject his wife with... uh, And why would you not think, oh, I know where they took him. They took him to the PSI place where I worked. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, because, yeah, because they never explain how... They get to the PSI facility. Well, I he he uses her psychic ability to get there. He says, "You led me here, and I and I have to finish this on my own." But but led led them where? How? Like she she got them on the bus and told them where she was receiving the signal. <laughs> bus from drive here, bus. Like no, well, that's not how buses that, work. Yeah, that is how buses work. You no, get on they, the bus, you buy a ticket to go to a place, yeah, and the yeah, bus takes you there. But not to an exact location. No, he of got the knows bus. where the location is. You can get off the bus and walk, Richard. Right, I know that. But <laughs> that's that what never, they did. No, no, it's not what they did. They did. They got off the bus at the stop and then walked to the house. But how? But the, I'm not explaining myself well. I'm no, sorry. You're not because. They we we just see them there suddenly. Like she never says, "I know where it is" or "I know how to get there." The, the magic of movie. He says, "You told me how to get here." He says that when he he's telling her, her to get he, back on. So the So she gave him an address. 
Yes, because she okay. can psychically connect to Robin. Then so why didn't sees, we see that? Because we didn't have to. I didn't like that. We didn't see them sleeping in between each of the days. Did that bother you? <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't watch them for eight hours <laughs> sleeping on a bus? No, but he says, you led me here, and now I have to finish this on my own. You go out to Seattle where, for some reason, there's a force field that keeps PSI agents yeah. away. <laughs> and you'll be safe with, forever. With, with no money. <laughs> yeah. And your rich mom looking for you here. And she'll she'll probably pay even more to Raymond Dunwoody to find you than than the the evil PSI people will. But yeah, I like the effects here. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the son character is a little wasted because it seems from the beginning like he's going to be very important to the story, and then he kind of disappears for mm-hmm. a big chunk of it. But uh, he comes back and he's very creepy at the end. He doesn't seem human really. Yeah. They would never let him out of the facility at all. Yeah, I thought it was weird that they gave him this 24-hour reprieve unless the point was literally just to let him kill a specific target on this yeah. roller coaster because they were like, okay, you go, you have 24 hours because we have a couple guys in turbans who need to get thrown through a restaurant. I mean, so when he goes crazy there, though, he goes crazy because uh, his girlfriend, Dr. Lady, is talking to other dudes. Right. That's mm-hmm. what sets him off. That's what triggers him initially. Yes. Yeah. Where was she? Like, She was at a gift shop. Well, but Wait, he, but she just lets this guy wander around Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I assume there are eyes on him at all times, but it yeah. is weird that he seems unaccompanied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, we literally, like a scene before this, likened him to an atomic yeah. bomb ready to go off at any moment. Yeah. And so I'm going to hang out in this gift shop and give these two guys hand jobs while you just wander around <laughs> blowing people up. Yeah, she's got like drinks. Like they're having drinks together. It's just like, here, here, here's a couple of quarters. Go play while mommy has a drink with her friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay where I can see you, sweetie. Um, yeah, that is weird. <laughs> but it happened. <laughs> Well, because she makes it like a deal, like it's a trip for them to bond and to be together like as a couple, (laughs) but she just abandons him immediately. Can you imagine though, if in like 1984, you finally got around to watching this movie, you're like, oh, that place looks really cool. I'm going to go check that out. Oh, they closed it down. (laughs) I wonder what (laughs) happened. I wonder if there was a psychic attack here. But yeah. It was, in fact, a tap dancer on the roof of that place though when it opened. It's got a big, it's got a big dome. On the top of this building, because oh, yeah? it's you know it's like the I think at the time it, I don't know if it's probably not still true, but the because lar- it's closed, yeah. but the largest indoor amusement park ever built, and it had this giant dome over the middle. And in order to advertise it or do it like a stunt when it opened, they had somebody tap dancing on the top of this dome. Well, that's weird. Yeah, but I do think it was just on uh, Yablanza's list of like this is a cool room that we're yeah. going to shoot in. So before it's gone, we'll we'll find an excuse to use this room, and I, I feel like they put it to really good use because this the way they shot this roller coaster makes it look like it's going out of control. Yeah, and I totally believe this piece coming off of it and flying through the the restaurant wind window. I, I'm more impressed that this building was able to support itself. Like, right. Yeah. Because there's like there's no like. There's not weight-bearing pillars. In yeah. The yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's why it was like this amazing engineering feat mm-hmm. to be such a large building that had a dome on it so it didn't have any of those structural supports in a place where it snows (laughs) yes weight of all that (laughs) that's why why it only lasted 10 years (laughs) the city doesn't get really windy does it no no No, they don't call it that (laughs) 
Oh, shit, they do call it that. thought it was Windy City. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever seen it written. <laughs> what, what do we call that, a misel? Yeah. This is a big thumbs up for me, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah thumbs a lot up. Of fun. I, I got to see if I can get a hold of the, the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I did like the soundtrack. Our director here was Brian De Palma. This is our fourth Brian De Palma title after home movies, Dress to Kill, and Blowout. He also directs Scarface, The Untouchables, Phantom of the Paradise, Get to Know Your Rabbit, Carrie, Bonfire of the Vanities, Mission to Mars, and The Black Dahlia. Writer novelist John Ferris also wrote a novel adapted into Because They're Young in 1960 and screenplays for Dear Dead Delilah, which he also directed, and more recently 2019's No Sin Unpunished. He also wrote a Masters of Horror episode called Ice Cream, You Scream, We All Scream for Ice Cream. Producer Frank Yablans was a celebrated Paramount executive who this season of the podcast will win two Razzies for producing and writing Mommy Dearest right around the corner. He wrote Mommy Dearest. Hmm. The music here is from John Williams. He patterned his work here after the scores of Bernard Herrmann in various Hitchcock films. He does all the Star Wars movies, all the indie movies, The Long Goodbye, The Supermans, Harry Potters, Jurassic Parks, etc. We've obviously heard him last year in Empire, and he's back this year with Superman 2 and we haven't gotten to it yet. Heartbeeps. Somehow they locked John Williams in for heartbeeps. Oh, man. He also wrote a Christmas score for Home Alone that fits so well that I was convinced they were just using Christmas songs that existed. Cinematographer Richard H. Klein. Before this, he DPs Andromeda Strain, The Mechanic, Soylent Green, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and The 76 King Kong. We've seen his work on Touched by Love, The Competition, and Body Heat. He also lights Star Trek TMP, Death Wish 2, All of Me, the Man with One Red Shoe, and My Stepmother is an Alien. Editor Paul Hirsch also cut Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, and A New Hope before this. We've seen his work so far on Empire Strikes Back and Blowout, and he's back to edit Creepshow, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Mission to Mars, The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and The Tom Cruise Mummy. That took a turn. <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry, Mr. Hirsch. Well, yeah, uh, you keep bringing up Mission to Mars, and I just keep going, man, Brian De Palma did that movie? Yeah, he did. Kirk Douglas played Peter. He was 61 when this came out. He's Spartacus. He's Van Gogh. He was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for some time. We had him so far in Saturn 3, Home Movies, and The Final Countdown, and he died between us recording our review of Saturn 3 and us posting our review of Saturn 3 in 2020 at the ripe old age of 103. John Cassavetes played Childress. He played Victor Franco in The Dirty Dozen, Guy Woodhouse in Rosemary's Baby, He's the director of Minion Moskowitz, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and Husbands, and he was the husband of Gloria actress Gina Rollins and the director of that film in the first season of the podcast. Carrie Snodgrass played Hester. Wait, he was married to the director? No, he was the director. Oh, okay. Gina Rollins and the director of that film. <laughs> yep. He was married to himself. <laughs> Carrie Snodgrass played Hester. We just had Snodgrass in our Minnesota review of The Attic. Prior to this appearance, Snodgrass had won acclaim, an Oscar nomination, and Golden Globe Awards for her back-to-back -back appearances in Diary of a Mad Housewife and Rabbit Run in 1970. She took the next seven years off to move in with her partner at the time, musician Neil Young, and to care for their son together, Zeke, who was born with mild cerebral palsy. Sylvester Stallone has said that she was the first choice to play Adrian in Rocky and was offered that part, but turned it down for a shot at Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians and she wound up in neither film. After her relationship with Young, Snodgrass fell into a relationship with regular Young collaborator Jack Nietzsche, composer of films like The Exorcist, Cuckoo's Nest, and on the show so far, Cruising, Heartbeat, and Cutter's Way. 
They separated when Nietzsche barged into her home one night with a gun, threatening to kill her, for which he was sentenced to a mere three years probation. Sadly, Snodgrass passed away at 58 in 2004, awaiting a liver transplant. Charles Durning played Dr. Jim McKeever. We had him last season as Arnold Arnold in Die Laughing and Senator Chapman in The Final Countdown, also starring Kirk Douglas. He'll show up in Scarface as an interrogator, voice only, which is the same credit we mentioned for Dennis Franz in our Dress to Kill review. He's also Moretti in Dog Day Afternoon, Doc Hopper in The Muppet Movie, Pappy O'Daniel in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and Santa Claus in Elmo Saves Christmas. <laughs> Amy Irving played Gillian. She's Sue Snell in Carrie and Carrie 2. She's Haddis in Yentl, Miss Kitty in Fievel Goes West, and we've seen her so far in Honeysuckle Rose and The Competition. Fiona Lewis played Susan Charles. She was Dr. Margaret Kanker in Inner Space, which is another film where she plays a scientist who has sex with someone else involved in the secret project. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, she's just, yep. she's typecast. She was also Patricia in Tinto Terra Killer Shark, the Mexican Jaws ripoff. Andrew Stevens played Robin. He transitioned to producing with titles like Boondock Saints, 3KMTG, and The Whole Nine Yards. He also has credits on the entire Night Eyes trilogy, in which he stars as Will Griffith. The Night Eyes trilogy. Everybody knows Night Eyes, Night Eyes 2, and Night Eyes 3, right? Nope. No. He also wrote Half Past Dead 2. <laughs> Not Half Past Dead, but Half Past Dead 2. Carol Eve Rossin played Dr. Ellen Lindstrom. She was Dr. Fancher in The Stepford Wives. Ratanya Alda played Kristen. She was Angela in Deer Hunter, Carol Ann in Mommy Dearest Soon, and Dolores Montelli in Amityville 2. We saw her last season as Teresa in Christmas Evil. Joyce Easton played Mrs. Belliver. She was in 40 episodes of Days of Our Lives in the late 60s as Janet Banning. William Finley played Raymond Dunwoody. He was a scientist in Simon last season and Marco the Magnificent in The Fun House earlier this season. He's also the voice of the killer on the phone in Dress to Kill and the titular Phantom of the Paradise. And he shows up in, in almost every De Palma movie as whatever creepy character they need. J. Patrick McNamara played Robertson. He was Private Dubois in 1941 and project leader in Close Encounters for Spielberg. But more importantly, he is the father of Bill S. Preston Esquire and the one-time husband of Bill and Ted's classmate, Missy. Alice Nunn played Mrs. Callahan. I just saw her as a woman smuggling a dog onto a plane in Airport 1975. She also appeared in TV movie Dark Knight of the Scarecrow alongside her Fury co-star Charles Durning. We'll see her again soon as Helga in Mommy Dearest, again with actress Ratanya Alda, but she's best known to all as Large Marge from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Melody Thomas Scott played LaRue. She was Nikki Reed Newman in 3,211 Young and the Restlesses. Hmm. Hillary Thompson played Cheryl. She was Pam in Nighthawks earlier this season. I don't think Pam was the ex-wife. I think Pam is the flight attendant woman who invites Wolfgar to stay in her apartment while he's in town. Oh, okay. Uh, her voice was totally dubbed over by Betty Buckley, who De Palma had cast as Miss Collins in his previous film, Carrie. Pat Billingsley played Lander. He was the time travel professor in Somewhere in Time last season and a biology teacher in My Bodyguard last season. J.P. Bumstead played Green, that's another of the henchmen, and I only recognize the name because he's the guy who's constantly eating a sandwich in MacGyver episode Nightmares. Do you remember this? <laughs> and we were like, J.P. Bumstead is the perfect name for this 
big guy that's just constantly eating sandwiches. Uh, remind me what, which one's Nightmares. Is that the one where the woman keeps having visions? Where the girl gets poisoned. Or no, where MacGyver gets poisoned and the girl has to help him. Yeah. And he, and he can't remember who he is. Okay, okay. I, I always get the ones where he's with this, because I think because I'm on psychics right now, where the woman keeps having the psychic visions of like the car driving across the water. Oh, yeah. No, that was uh, Silent World, mm. I think. Um, but yeah, but Nightmares is where he like he meets the girl on the street. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, he teaches her to fish at the end yeah. with a gum wrapper. Jack Callahan played DeMassey. He's one of the good old boys in Blues Brothers. Dennis Franz played Bob. This was his first film. We saw him as a sort of PI in Blowout and before that as a detective in the previous De Palma review, Dressed to Kill. He's also Carmine Lorenzo in Die Hard 2, but probably best known as Detective Andy Sipowicz on NYPD Blue, where he earned the glorious distinction of playing the first naked ass on primetime television. <laughs> Gordon Jump played Knuckles. He's probably best known for the role of Arthur Carlson on WKRP in Cincinnati or as Mr. Thomas Solo one of Costanza's bosses at a company called Play Now, where George fakes some kind of handicap on Seinfeld. Yeah. Daryl Hannah played Pam. This was her first film role. You could trust me this time, or <laughs> can you? We've seen her so far in Hard Country as Kim Basinger's little sister. She also shows up in Kill Bill as L Driver, in Splash, in Clan of the Cave Bear, Roxanne, High Spirits, Crazy People, and more recently as Angelica Turing in 24 episodes of that Wachowski Netflix series Sense8. In August of 2018, she married singer Neil Young. Yeah. So she and Snodgrass were both in relationships with Neil Young. Four-year relationships as of right now. Laura Ennis played Jody. This was her first film. She's probably best known as Carrie Weaver from ER. More recently, she has portrayed Governor Lynn Burkhead on How to Get Away with Murder. Marshall Colt played a technician, probably one of the guys... Uh, observing Robin at that facility. He played Cookie in Those Lips, Those Eyes last season. He is the father in Flowers in the Attic and Lieutenant Lee Corbin in a two-part Walker, Texas Ranger episode. Steven Johnson played another technician. He was the cop in SOB earlier this season. I think that's the scene where they're weekend at Burnsing Richard Mulligan's body around. Yeah. Jim Belushi played a beach bum. This was his first feature film appearance. Uh, he is the brother of John. He's the titular Yim of According to Yim fame, and so far we've seen him as Barry in Michael Mann's Thief. Sam Irvin played amusement park patron uncredited. Later he directed Elvira's Haunted Hills, the direct-to-video sequel to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, written by Cassandra Peterson and John Jombie Paragon. I've never actually seen it, but it also stars Richard O'Brien from Rocky Horror Picture Show and Flash Gordon, and my friend Mary Shear from the original cast of Mad TV. I worked with Mary on Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, on which she wrote and provided the voice of every female character. Mark Romanek was a production assistant on this movie. It was his first job in the industry, and he is a prolific A-lister music video director for artists like Madonna, R.E.M., Nine Inch Nails, Michael Jackson, U2, and Justin Timberlake. Some of my favorite videos of his are Fiona Apple's Criminal, Nine Inch Nails' Closer, Audio Slave's Cochise, and Johnny Cash's Nine Inch Nails cover, Hurt. He also directed one of the darker Robin Williams movies, One Hour Photo. I think that's everything for The Fury. Thanks again to Justin Aylett for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer 
for the Fury. Go on. What do you mean you won? You did not. There are no secrets between father and son, except one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, and the terrifying comes a new classic, The Fury. Read my mind. Look, I don't know anything about reading minds, all right? The Fury, an experience in terror and suspense. They took my son away from me. They needed him, so they just took him. What the hell have you done to that boy? Oh, he's being treated like a prince. He is, he's royalty, unique. Chinese don't have one, Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sands, unless it's this girl. Who's Robin Sands? He's a boy your age, with powers like yours. Powers that build. And build until they become the Fury. I want Gillian Belliver at the PSI facility tomorrow. It's a frightening power these people have. They can make anybody disappear anytime. She's a fake. I'm sending her home. I don't have time to waste on people. Don't do that to me, Doctor. Don't ever try lying to me. Gillian? Where is Robin now, Gillian? What's the matter, Robin? You know what's the matter. Stop, Gillian! That girl's taking my place after you poisoned me! The Fury is the power that holds the key to all power. Peter, I was lying before. Robin's not okay. He needs us now. For lovers of the shocking. Robin? The suspenseful. Please answer me. And the terrifying. Robin! Comes a new classic. 20th Century Fox presents a Frank Yablon's presentation. Do you recognize your old man? The Fury. <laughs> the Fury, a Brian De Palma film. An experience in terror and suspense.